Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Across all the conversations we've hosted on this show over the past six years regarding nicotine vaping products, the one perspective often underserved is that of the consumer. Why is that? Perhaps it's because most people who consume nicotine vaping products don't consider themselves to be vapors. They are smokers or ex-smokers who simply go about their day mostly unconnected to the battle over vaping. Considering the forces allied against vaping are massive, what role are consumers playing in the fight? Joining us today to discuss the consumer challenge is Charles Gardner, Executive Director of INCO, the International Network of Nicotine Consumer Organizations. Charles, thanks for coming on RegWatch. Thank you for having me. And uh, I have to say, I have just joined INCO uh, just a few months ago. And it's an honor and it's a privilege. And I, I am humbled by all the work that INCO members have been doing before me. We have members in 35 different countries. We have people all over the world. There are thousands of people involved. And we do our best to represent and support the rights of 98 million people worldwide who are using safer nicotine products in order to avoid or reduce or quit more toxic forms of tobacco. This is a this is a big uh, it's a big fight. So let's uh, take a moment to talk a bit about your background because it is deeply impressive. You are a neurobiologist with also over 25 years experience working in global health. Fill our viewers in a bit about the organizations you've worked with and the types of projects you've tackled. Yeah, so I have uh, done a lot of things in my past and including working in philanthropy and other foundations in a number of foundations and in uh, was a diplomat for five years in India as the health attache at the U.S. Embassy there working for the U.S. Department of Health and also working for the State Department. And there I was making arranged marriages between Indian and American scientists and public health people. I have worked at the Rockefeller Foundation. I worked in the U.S. Department of Health uh, before going to India. Uh, I also worked on the Hill, uh, so I have worked with members of Congress and, and Hill staffers and Hill rats. I was what they call a Hill rat. And, uh, and um, even there, uh, this is a long time ago, but uh, one of my colleagues there in the same office was a man named Mitch Zeller, who is now head of the uh, CDC Tobacco Control Office. So you know a little bit about uh, something about science then. So what were your thoughts when you first reviewed <laughs> the science around vaping? I mean, were you in for a shock when you first looked at the science? Well, I, I have never seen anything as crazy as this field of tobacco control. Uh, and I um, don't say that lightly. It's caused me a, an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance because I believe in the peer review process. I believe in that process as it applies to journals, good publications, testing and retesting hypotheses. I believe, you know, have believed for, for decades in the, in the, the whole uh, issue of, of scientific presentations and in international meetings. I've attended many, many dozens of those. However, I can go back to thinking about history. I mean, obviously you can go back 400 years and you can think about the debate over geocentrism and heliocentrism and Galileo. You can look to a strange field called phrenology in the, in the 19th century, um, but more appropriately, the fields uh, around the turn of the century and, and by the 1920s of Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union and of 
I hate to raise this, but of racial hygiene, uh, which is a field that was funded by a number of prominent American foundations around the turn of the century. There were peer-reviewed journals there. They, um, you know, so there were editors, there were, there were peer reviewers, there were publications, there were international meetings uh, and a whole bubble uh, echo chamber of, of what we would now call junk science, self-reinforcing. So I, there, there, I have a, I have a, the, the, the reference point here is interesting because not everything in tobacco control is wrong. Not every tobacco control researcher is a dogmatist uh, or a zealot. They're not. In fact, we all have the same goals, which is reducing uh, horrible death from cancer, heart and lung disease from toxic forms of tobacco. But I'm aware that we humans can convince ourselves of things that are not necessarily true and that we always need to be on guard for that. So is the point here then that you've seen some connection with uh, horrible kind of aspects and use of science in the past with some of the science that's going on right now in tobacco harm reduction? I think any uh, tobacco control researcher who just who hears what I just said would recoil in horror. So I, I'm not painting the entire field in with a, that same brush. I will say that I have seen a lot of publications that take an association seen in a cross-sectional survey from which you cannot possibly find causation. And the researchers in the press releases from their universities, which are written up by people who are not scientists, uh, claim causation. I have seen countless studies that look at what's in, for example, e-cigarette vapor, and don't compare it to what's in cigarette smoke. That, that's, that's just from the start, uh, a, a big no-no, because this is about, if you're talking about harm reduction, this is about reducing harm. I've seen uh, countless studies that, for example, will lump together uh, from surveys, someone who has ever looked sideways at an e-cigarette, so ever vapors, with people who are current vapors and pooling that whole population, then come to the conclusion that e-cigarettes don't help smokers quit. And, and all of us in this field, we kind of debate whether this is intentional, whether it's deliberate or whether it's um, just bad science. What's your determination on that? It's probably a mixture of the two. There are people in the tobacco control community who have been fighting big tobacco, the tobacco companies for decades uh, and with good reason because the tobacco industry did very, very bad things. They may be fighting a fight that, that was appropriate 10, 20 years ago. Uh, there's a different world now because the tobacco industry in the high income countries is regulated. And because it's regulated, they have to produce science and the science has to be produced for the regulators. And if they lie to the regulators, the regulators will shut them down. And this is true for vaping companies as well. And so the, um, we are in a, in a position now where all 
research produced by those companies is dismissed because it's coming from evil tobacco industry or evil vape industry and, the, and it can't be trusted. Um, so w w the people who are fighting that fight, to my thinking, are fighting a fight that was appropriate decades ago. Times have changed. You've got a, a generalized perspective and a particular perspective. Who are the enemies and what's driving them? The enemy is, is disease. The enemy is human suffering. The enemy is, is the things that we could help people avoid. I mean, if you're a smoker, we know because of longitudinal studies, uh, some of them as, as many as 65 years in length with tens of thousands of participants, smoking shortens the lives of about 50% of lifelong smokers by about 10 years. And when I tell this to people, some of them, sometimes they're very shocked because the, the conclusion here is it's, it's neither a certain nor an instant death sentence. And if you quit smoking before the age of 35 or 40, you will avoid all life years lost. Again, we can refer back to these large longitudinal studies involving tens of thousands of people. We know this, this is not in question, it's not up for debate. So we really need to, if, if the goal is, and the enemy is the preventable death and disease, the goal needs to be to focus on helping adult smokers quit. There's obviously, though, still some form of an enemy for tobacco control that doesn't seem to be connected to the disease aspect because it's very focused on the tobacco companies. And But you were explaining to me off camera uh, an issue with regards to how the tobacco companies used to fight that we now find ourselves in a similar position. Explain that for us. So a lot of people in, in tobacco control have been there for decades and uh, know uh, because they fought the battles. They know what the tobacco industry was doing 10, uh, 20, 30 years ago and more. Uh, and it was really despicable. There's no question about it. The tobacco industry understood that they had no, uh, no chance. There was no possibility that they could convince the public and politicians and public health people that cigarettes were safe but all they had to do was teach, uh, convince the public that there was a scientific controversy. You didn't need to convince people that cigarettes are safe. You just needed to convince people that the experts disagree. And they did that very, very well by funding researchers, funding research, funding what we now call AstroTurf cons consumer organizations. And my organization is often uh, accused of being like that um, so, which is a little disconcerting since about 75% of us don't really like tobacco companies. But um, so that, so these tactics were honed to, to great efficiency by the tobacco industry, just push public confusion, make people think that the experts disagree. And it, it, frankly, the, the exact same law firms were hired by people in the fossil fuel industry to do the same thing on climate change. Now that's a controver another controversial 
subject, but the idea was to convince the public that the experts disagree. The field of tobacco control is now using the same tactics, the same merchants of doubt tactics, but in reverse, because the scientific consensus is actually growing as to the safety of safer nicotine alternatives to toxic forms of tobacco, as to their effectiveness in helping smokers quit, as to the very low number of young adults and teens and children who are, who are using these products and none of us want them to use these products. We have evidence on the number of adults who have quit smoking entirely in the UK, in the United States, in the EU. None of that gets public except in the UK. All of that evidence is, is growing and it would make any sensible human being think that, oh, well, we should probably, you know, take a look at these safer alternatives when smoking is killing 8 million people every year uh, and killing 480,000 people in the United States and, 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 and so on. Um, and so the tobacco control advocacy side of things, so a little bit separated from the, the researchers, what they're doing is saying the experts disagree, right? So I can show you a list of 60 respected scientific and public health organizations worldwide, because it exists, this list, with no tobacco ties that say, and it's a selected list, but that say nicotine vaping is safer than smoking. Okay. The experts disagree. Because I, if I took the time, I could come up with a list, a similar list of organizations that, that say the opposite. Really interesting question here, since I'm a scientist, is why? Why are we in such a disagreement here? Um, the UK seems to have an almost universal consensus. These are safer. They're effective in helping smokers quit and thus not die. And they have very little teen vaping. So... It's a, it's a puzzle, but it is incredibly ironic to me to watch the same tactics that were once used by the tobacco industry turn back against safer products that can help smokers quit. Now, what's the damage uh, that happens with these kind of tactics? I mean, I'll put it out there. Of course, we're, we've seen with flavor bans. I mean, Canada just went to a full national flavor ban. Hopefully it doesn't go through, but they've dropped that nicotine restrictions. We have excise taxes. Of course, all of that really was blazed. Uh, the trail was blazed in the United States where everything kind of seems to start from both with actually the technology and so forth and the industry. And then now all the efforts to destroy it, if I'm not being um, too dramatic. What are we doing with safer nicotine products now? It's not just e-cigarettes. It's nicotine pouches. Um, to some extent, uh, even snus is being banned in, in, in some countries, and it's certainly banned in most of the European Union. We're raising their taxes, so we're making them less affordable. We're banning flavors, so we're making them less acceptable, less palatable to the user. We're imposing arbitrary nicotine caps, so again, less acceptable to the user and less effective for smoking cessation. 
And in the United States, we're banning mail shipment. We're banning online sales in many states. So we're making them less accessible to adults. And, and especially for people who are living in rural areas where rural smokers and rural vapors, this is, this is crazy. So the, the way to make an e-cigarette less effective for smoking cessation is to make it less affordable, less acceptable, and less accessible than cigarettes, which are still available on every, in every corner store and in every gas station you, you go to. The entire potential of the world is wrapped up in our children and how dare the tobacco and vaping industries threaten that future by carelessly exposing our youth to um, addiction to nicotine via these products. That really seems to be the entire reason. That is the raison d'etre for why they seem to be pretty much shutting down the industry. Yeah, but it's interesting because the same arguments were used in Reefer Madness in the 1930s or uh, something called the great comic book scare in the 1950s. But the, the same arguments were used against methadone. So this is what, what if it gets into the hands of teenagers uh, and uh, it's normalizing a bad behavior. It's just switching one addiction for another. Um, and, uh, and the same arguments, this is not well known, but the same arguments were used when it was discussed whether to make nicotine gum available to the public over the counter. And think about it, nicotine gum is not available in tobacco flavor because the pharmaceutical industry understands that adults don't want that in their gum. They want fruit medley flavor and menthol flavor and uh, mint flavor, which is what they get. So, but the arguments against nicotine gum, they were very similar. Teens will get their hands on this. Teens will become addicted. It will, and of course, the, that nicotine is a gateway then, so it would lead teens into smoking and smoke, teen smoking would increase. None of these things happened. We can't say that there's a scientific consensus that e-cigarettes are bad for you and they don't help smokers quit because there isn't a scientific consensus around that. There is a debate. There's a little legitimate debate uh, and the, the sooner we have that debate in public, get journalists interested, get the public to understand that there are two sides to this. It's difficult to see. Uh, and, and sometimes you just want, you want to um, take somebody and, and, and just sit them down and have a respectful conversation about what are the starting points of the, of the what are your starting assumptions here? Charles, I'm struck a bit with what's happened with the WHO and all of the tobacco control agencies, you know, around the world, they seem to not want to talk to anybody in the industry. And so while you make a good point in terms of we should get people together, they don't want to get together. Right. It's, you have to understand that the framework convention on tobacco control was negotiated more than 20 years ago now. I mean, the negotiations began long before it was signed. And um, there was a long legacy of the tobacco industry having uh, very bad behaviors. And so the, this idea of what's uh, Article 5.3 in the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control is really just a recommendation to member countries, to, to the signatories of this first global health treaty, that they should not let tobacco companies influence their policy. That's basically all it says. What's happened is that the Secretariat of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control has now taken that 
and written recommendations for member countries that go far beyond that. So at this point, the tobacco control field is pushing uh, an argument that um, research universities should not accept research funding from a tobacco company or from even a vape company. Now think about that. Safer nicotine vape companies are trying to kill big tobacco's main cash cow, cigarettes, but, but they're not to be trusted. So you can't accept money from them because they can't be trusted. And there's a similar push for scientific journals not to accept funding, I'm sorry, not to accept um, research publications from scientists who uh, have any tobacco ties. If they looked sideways at somebody who once worked in a tobacco company at a reception 20 years ago, um, and, it, and the ad hominem uh, arguments being made against people who, who are really genuinely trying to save lives today are, are getting very disturbing, but it, it makes your life simpler. If you can just dismiss any scientific findings that you don't like, that don't fit your dog dogma um, by saying, well, that must come out of the tobacco industry. And, and the uh, FCTC, right? The Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, their secretariat has numerous documents saying that any reference to harm reduction in the field of tobacco control represents an obvious industry influence. So, so I think this is at the crux of a lot of this irreconcilable conflict stuff, but the, the assumption that anyone who says that nicotine might have some health benefits or beyond just helping smokers quit in a nicotine patch and nicotine gum, or anyone who says that there is a continuum of risks from extremely lethal combustible tobacco cigarettes to nicotine patches and nicotine gum and a lot of things in between. Cigars are in between. They're not as dangerous as smoking cigarettes, but to say that is, is to violate um, a kind of uh, public trust within tobacco control. There's something else going on, which is that a lot of people in the tobacco control field actually do understand what's going on and are in their heart of hearts increasingly sympathetic to the evidence and the, and the possibility that such a thing as tobacco harm reduction could exist. And uh, so now then, but they're involved in a kind of group thing, so they could lose their job. They could be uh, excommunicated from, from, from that scientific community if they begin to, to even to voice some doubts. And a few brave people now are, are starting to shift sides uh, and, and that's an increasing number of people. So it's, this is interesting to, for me as a scientist, this is interesting for me to watch that change in the, in the scientific community happening. I will tell you another example from my past, which is 20 to 25 years ago um, in the field that was my main, my main thing back then was drug and vaccine development for low and middle income countries. There was a big debate about whether we should work with the pharmaceutical industry. And I can tell you, long experience, people in the, in the global health community and the public health community are extremely conservative and very few of them have ever taken an economics course. 
Um, and so understand how the markets work, how the, you know, how, so basically profit is evil. Pharmaceutical companies are profit driven. Therefore, pharmaceutical companies are evil. So we couldn't collaborate with them. We couldn't partner with them in a way that, that would still protect the public interest. Let's jump into the teen vaping issue. Was there actually an epidemic of teen vaping? Let's go way back. Let's go back uh, almost 10 years. So we, 2013, 2014 in the United States, all my data is going to come from the U.S., but the U.S. is the source of the misinfodemic for the world. So, so it, it makes sense to, to focus here. The way public health measures teen current use for both cigarettes and vaping products is basically greater than or equal to one puff in the past month. So it's not, it's not what common sense would tell you current use is. And it's odd that the definition of current use for adults is much closer to common sense. It's basically daily and regular use. So teen, I'm going to be talking about teen current use. Creeps up to around 15% by 2014. Teen smoking plummets 27% over that time period. And then 2015, 2016, teen vaping actually dropped. Teen smoking stopped dropping during that same time period. It hit a flat line. Now, teen vaping begins to increase 2018. 2019. During that time period, teen smoking dropped 43%. So there's a there's a direct inverse relationship that anybody could anybody should be able to see here. Teen vaping, the numbers that are given to the public are only ever that current use number, which is past 30-day ever use. You have to dig deep in government uh public service announcements to find how many are frequent vapors, which means more than 20 days per month, or daily vapors, which is what I would be concerned about. I would assume some daily nicotine vapors may be you know, hooked or may be dependent. I would not assume that all of them are. At the peak of the so-called teen vaping epidemic in the United States, which is 2019, Coincidentally, a year that the National Youth Tobacco Survey forgot to ask what they were vaping, so the number probably included THC vaping as well as nicotine vaping. Mm -hmm. uh, it hits a high, and the current use was around 27%, but the daily use was 5.8% then. 2019 to March 2020, again, according to the National Youth Tobacco Survey, Teen current use dropped 29% in one year. And daily use dropped from 5.8% down to 4.4%. So that's a 24% drop in daily, daily use. Now, if you just told the public how many kids are vaping daily, they would, I think almost everybody would just shrug and say, well, what, what was all the fuss about then? So there is a tendency in, in, in public health to exaggerate numbers. And there's a you know, reasonable concern that if a teen vapes once in the past month experimentally, that they might later pick it up, but most don't. I mean, the numbers show most don't. It's you know, infrequent use is infrequent use and not necessarily leading to 
smoking and to uh, a, a nightmare of drug addiction. Charles, we're learning now that the picture is not what tobacco control has been painting. A new study just released by the University of Michigan looks at adolescent marijuana and alcohol use during COVID-19 pandemic. And what they found with regard to nicotine vaping was that in high school seniors, nicotine vaping declined during the pandemic, while use of marijuana and alcohol stayed relatively steady. I mean, that's amazing. What do you make of this? This is really coming on the heels of two previous large surveys that were conducted. They're all showing the same thing. So that during the pandemic, U.S. high school nicotine vaping has dropped about 30%. This is a publication in the Journal of the American Medical Association at the toward the end of 2020, um, research conducted by, that, by Stanford and UCSF. That's followed in the early part of 2021 by a, a publication by researchers funded by the Truth Initiative, which really doesn't like vaping. They show the same thing. And now we have this monitoring the future study showing again, the same thing. They, they see a 29% drop in teen vaping. This comes itself on the heels of a massive drop from 2019 to early to March, 2020, just before the pandemic hits. That's seen in the National Youth Tobacco Survey 2020. So we've, we're looking at a 50% drop in teen vaping over a, actually a 20 month period. Why are teens not vaping? Well, maybe it was just a fad. Maybe it was like fidget spinners. And I remember fads when I was a kid. You know, we had skateboards one year, then we had marbles the next year. Okay, vaping is a, is a, is a bit more serious. Um, and maybe it wasn't a fad. Maybe uh, the teens believed the stories around lung injuries that were actually caused by bootleg THC vaping. Um, maybe, um, maybe some of the I, I hate to say it, but misinformation around the anti-vaping messages finally got through. But I think that those are mixed messages because the anti-vaping messages that teens get basically tell them, all your friends are doing it, even the cool kids. Here's where you can get nicotine. They come in a variety of flavors. And, um, and if you really want to piss off adults, here's a way to do it. So I've so those are mixed messages, to, to be sure. And in, in the same way that this is your brain on drugs, just say no stuff in the 1980s was. I don't know why teen vaping has plummeted 50% in the past 20 months. But I'm happy that it has, because nobody in the adult community of people who use safer nicotine alternatives to cigarettes wants teens to vape. And I'm pretty sure nobody in the industry wants them to vape either. Now, what I found interesting about this, and that's amazing, the 50% drop, was that it's, no, it's probably likely not to do with the fact that it was harder to get. Because alcohol and marijuana, we're talking about lockdown, 2020, lockdown, the whole Western world locked down, and teens still managed to get enough booze to binge drink and enough pot to smoke their, you know, their brains out pretty much the same as it was before. So what this proves, and here's what was said in the, in the study, quote, these findings suggest that reducing adolescent substance use through attempts to restrict supply alone would be a difficult undertaking. 
That is the most powerful sentence in the entire uh, short version of the study. That's a key observation that reducing supply through prohibition isn't going to reduce teen vaping. In fact, to the extent that it sends it into, it sends teens to illicit markets, they're going to then access products that may be less safe and are by definition sold with no age checks. It's, it's like people are not thinking these things completely through, nor is there much thought given to the fact that teen use of various substances is a kind of whack-a-mole problem. So if you reduce one, you're liable to see something, something else come up. So if we reduce teen vaping, it's probable that teen smoking will go back up again. It's been dropping precipitously three times faster than historical trends for the past 10 years. But there are indications from the monitoring the future uh, survey that teen smoking actually crept up a bit uh, just before the pandemic hit. And that would be coincident with a 29% drop in teen vaping. What about teen alcohol use? All right, so we have 16% of US high school kids reporting binge drinking in the past two weeks. CDC data shows that teen binge drinking causes 3,500 deaths every year and 119,000 emergency room visits every year. And then compare that to, we've got maybe 4% of teens vaping nicotine daily. So um, we should be concerned with the things that actually harm teens. And we should question why with, um, as the CDC again says, underage Americans drink 11% of all the alcohol in the country. We have alcohol 21, we have age checks. We don't have flavor bans on alcohol. I can purchase alcohol online and have it shipped to me. Presumably so could a teen. Um, so why are we reacting in such a, an irrational way to what is clearly an unwanted situation? If any teen is vaping, we don't want that. We, teens should not vape, they should not smoke, they should not drink, they should not uh, use cannabis, they're teens. Here we have a legal consumer product in Canada that within three years of that legalization, they are set to destroy the entire industry through a flavor ban, nicotine caps, and excise taxes. We'll shut down a vast majority of the vapors, vaping retailers, we'll leave just big tobacco in place. How is this an appropriate way for the regulator to react to, you know, in this particular case? Brent, I think part of the logic here is that a lot of people making these arguments assume that most people vaping are teens. We're dealing with pretty large populations of adults now in the United States. It's 11.6 million adults who are current users of, of nicotine vape products. And again, for adults, current use means daily or, or, or regular use. So 80, 80 to 90% of them prefer fruit, dessert, or candy flavors. So the market's for them. And 92% of frequent vapors are adults. I'm sure it's the same in Canada. Uh, so the market's for them. And so the flavors are there to meet that adult 
demand. So there's a, there's a funny logic that, that's going on here, which is okay, 80% also of teens vape flavors, therefore flavors must cause teen vaping. This is a, this is a strange kind of logic because then if you ban flavors, most teens won't vape, right? So here you've got two contradictory arguments because the same organizations that claim that teen vaping is a gateway to smelly, stinky, combustible tobacco, deadly cigarettes, tobacco cigarettes, tobacco flavored, also claim that if you ban all flavors except tobacco flavor, teen vaping will drop because apparently tobacco flavor is some kind of teen repellent. It's not logical. In fact, both arguments are wrong, but they're mutually contradictory. I, I would like to say something else about flavors and, and you've probably been said on your, on your show before, but the evidence is, is very clear that uh, fruit, dessert and candy flavors are at least 2.3 times more effective for smoking cessation than tobacco flavor. And part of the reason is they're just more enjoyable. We, we're, smoking is enjoyable. If you're a smoker, you do it because it gives you pleasure. So to get people off of cigarettes, you wanna find something more enjoyable than that. And so the part of the efficacy of an alternative, a safer alternative to smoking is something that people also enjoy doing. And so it turns out flavors, flavors are part of that, that, uh, that secret recipe to get smokers to quit. And then I have myself conducted a, a number of surveys and others have done the same. And so I have a real concern that when you ban flavors, adult vapors, some, most, most will keep on vaping, they'll find ways to get their, their products. But somewhere around 10 or 12% of adult vapors are gonna relapse to smoking. That's what they've told me. And in the United States, that could be as many as 500,000 people. So you if you banned flavors overnight in the United States, tomorrow you'd have half a million more smokers. Well, and we saw uh, with Dr. Abigail Friedman's uh, paper that came out about a month or so ago out of the Yale Public Health, which said in San Francisco, there was the odds of teens uh, because of the flavor ban of going to smoking was like 50% or times two. What was it? So that, that research is, is crucial. Um, so Yale University took a hard look at what happened when San Francisco banned flavors in June of 2018. By 2019, in San Francisco high schools, teen smoking had increased significantly, but it did not increase. In fact, it continued to decline in other school districts around San Francisco. What people need to understand is that vaping is not a gateway to smoking. These are direct product substitutes. And this is Econ 101, product substitutes. It's like an electronic camera for a film camera or an electric car for a, for a you know, combustible engine car. And so when you make one of these product substitutes less palatable, less accessible, or you inform people that it's more harmful, people will just shift to the other one. And in this case, the teens in, in San Francisco shifted 
to the much more deadly alternative, which is with cigarettes, tobacco cigarettes. But we've seen the same thing happen in Washington state and in New York and in Rhode Island and in Nova Scotia in terms of cigarette sales. Now, total cigarette sales, that's going to be mostly adults. So when you impose the higher taxes on a safer nicotine product, when you ban the flavors, you're, you're not just affecting teens, you're affecting the 90 plus percent of people who are using these products who are adults. And there you're just causing people to shift back to the deadly product. It doesn't make any sense. If Canada bans flavors, then it's going to see an increase in cigarette smoking. Uh, you will then see people in tobacco control uh, finding other reasons to explain why cigarettes, cigarette sales just increased. Uh, but but uh, there, are, there are some very smart researchers in Canada who will begin to explore that, I would assume. The thing is, uh, you obviously, with, with any global health policy applied to a huge population like Canada's or another country, it's a, it's a grand experiment. It's a huge experiment, an experiment really like any scientific experiment, but without informed consent in this case. And uh, we absolutely need to be looking at the outcomes of these experiments. And because so other countries can avoid the same mistakes. This is why in the United States, we say the states are the laboratory of democracy where they're the laboratory of public health as well. And so we need to be doing research just as uh, Abigail uh, at Yale did with what happened after the San Francisco banned uh, flavors. I, I, I'm sorry for adult ex-smokers in Canada who will suffer if this flavor ban goes through and it becomes national. I'm sorry for all of the Canadian adults or any Canadian who smokes because they will be less likely to quit. Um, and I'm sorry for the policymakers who are pushing these policies because the truth will out in three, four or five years after, I don't know how many, you know, tens of thousands of people have gone back to smoking or not quit when they could have quit. And they will have to know that they were responsible for that. In the United States, we have a big milestone coming up here this September with FDA and PMTA. What do we know about what's going on? We just had Alex Norsha on the show and surprisingly, he said that uh, some people out there in the US might be a little shocked with some of the messaging that may come out once some of these products are granted approval by FDA. What's he talking about? I have to have to agree with Alex, and I was that's exactly where I was going to go with this, which is let's 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 first look at the positives. The Food and Drug Administration has authorized eight uh, snus products, which is an oral smokeless tobacco product, as appropriate for the protection of public health, and authorized them the, the company to tell consumers that these are safer than smoking. Okay, which they are. Um, and then they've authorized another company 
which makes another smokeless tobacco product, which is a heat, not burn product. They've authorized that company to tell the public that if you switch completely from smoking to this product, you will reduce the level of toxins that, that you're exposed to. Well, we know a lot about that product. E-cigarettes are probably much, much safer than that. So it, I think we can assume with uh, certainty that come September, the Food and Drug Administration is going to authorize some e-cigarette products as appropriate for the protection of public health. Now, when they do that, several things are going to happen. People in my community are going to get very, very upset if most of those products are made by big tobacco companies because big tobacco had deep pockets and they could do all the research and they could do all the documentation to do to, to, to jump through all the hoops that the FDA required. My, meanwhile, cigarettes didn't have to do anything. They can stay on the market in every gas station and convenience store. So for safer products, there was a huge regulatory hurdle. And our fear is that the ones that will make it through the, the the starting gate, the first hoops are going to be largely big tobacco companies. So we have a, a, a regulatory system that's designed to reduce harms, but it's actually favoring big tobacco. That's a maybe. But the, the other thing that's going to happen is that people in the tobacco control community are going to have to deal with the fact that the Food and Drug Administration says these products are actually safer than smoking. They, and the FDA won't say that outright, but effectively that's what they're saying. And then it becomes even more untenable, completely untenable to reject the, the concept of tobacco harm reduction. It's a thing, right? I mean, we, tobacco control is the only field of public health on the planet that rejects harm reduction. Charles, you mentioned uh, your community. That's the, that's the consumer. It's, it's this consumer. We started this show here talking about the consumer. Let's finish that. You know, what is INCO doing to help advocate for them? How difficult is that? And what can they do to help your effort? So INCO is, a, is an organization for consumers and for all people who use safer nicotine alternatives to cigarettes and other forms of toxic tobacco. And as I said at the beginning, that's 98 million people worldwide, but I, I have to be the first to say, uh, most of them don't know that INCO exists or that I exist. Uh, at, at the same time, most of them may not be aware that their lives are under threat. So because most of them are former smokers or former users of other forms of more toxic forms of tobacco um, and governments around the world are, are moving to restrict those. So we are trying to learn. We're trying to learn from um, how did people in the drug harm reduction community 10, 20 years ago tilt the needle uh, in public opinion 
and in the voices of journalists, and then ultimately in the decisions made by policymakers. And it's, it's really about harnessing the evidence, but also using human stories and occasionally getting right out there and demonstrating. And, you know, we are, are doing our best to, to move in those directions. Otherwise, let me just say this. 30 years in global health. And I, I, I said that I've never seen a field as crazy as tobacco control, but I have to, I have to actually uh, paraphrase something I heard from Tom Frieden. We were together in India when I was stationed in India. He was the head of the CDC to, uh, tuberculosis efforts there then. He later went on to become director of the CDC and, and, uh, and do other things. I asked him, why, why are you in India? And Tom said, uh, because if I can reduce tuberculosis even 1% here in India, I will have saved more lives than I could ever save in my entire career as the commissioner of health in New York City. It made sense. And I, that often comes back to me because I think, huh, if I, if I and the community of people who, who are many of them more knowledgeable about this field than I am, um, more energetic, more organized, but, but basically all of us together can tilt the needle even a little bit. We're dealing with a global death toll of 8 million people, 1.1 billion people smoking on the planet. If we can shift this discussion even the tiniest bit, we will have saved countless lives. This is actually what drives me every single day.